please welcome the host of Transit Unplugged, Paul Comfort. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Excited to be with you here today at the Think Transit Conference, and this is our Transit Unplugged Live event. So happy to have with us four of our nation's, and actually North America's, leading transit executives to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and share with you uh, their lives, about their careers, and a little bit about what the future of public transportation looks like. And they're gonna dive into current challenges they're facing today. It's not every day you get an opportunity to hear from a CEO kind of in an unplugged setting. And that's what Transit Unplugged is all about. It's about an opportunity for CEOs to kind of share a little bit more about than you might hear when they're standing up giving an inspirational talk or when you see them on the news talking about a derailment or a strike or whatever the latest challenges they have to face. One of the things people may not realize is that when you're a CEO, all the easy decisions have been made before it gets to your desk. So the challenges that come to your desk are the ones that other people could not solve. So I'm also going to ask them to kind of unpack their thinking process and how they address challenges. And I believe this will be a help to all of you as you work to address the challenges you face on a daily basis. You may be aware Transit Unplugged is a podcast. If you don't listen to it or subscribe, I encourage you to do it. It's free. It's once a week. And it's this type of conversation with an individual transit leader. It's sponsored by Medaxo and also by Trapeze and Vontis and all of our companies as a gift to the public transportation industry, sharing the light on best practices and other leaders. Let's welcome our four guests. So when, we, uh, when I pulled together a panel for this year, um, I... I one of the first people I thought of was Doran Barnes. Doran is a real industry icon, one of the godfathers of our industry, former chairman of APTA and uh, CEO of one of the most innovative transit systems in the country, which is Foothill Transit in California. Doran, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Monica Backman is with us uh, from the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority. I got to make sure I say the last word right because there's also a commission and both their CEOs are here. Kate Matice is here as well, uh, but they work in that capital region. She's going to talk today about what's happening in Washington, D.C. with transit and her role there. Thank you for being with us, Monica. Thank you for having me. And then, of course, my good friend, Erin Pinkerton. Erin's been uh, a good friend of ours for a long time. Uh, she heads up the transit system in British Columbia, Canada, and has a service area. I don't want to steal your thunder, but it's bigger than you would imagine. I'll let her give you the number. Thank you for being with us. 365,000 square miles. How do you like that? <laughs> 1,000 miles for every day of the year. And, <laughs> and then Billy Terry is here. He's the executive director of the National Transit Institute. Appreciate him being here. Our good friend, Eulis Cleckley, couldn't make it. He had a last-minute board meeting. One of the many hazards of being a CEO, so many times those kind of things happen, but I really appreciate you stepping in. Billy leads our nation's transit training efforts at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for being with us on the panel today, Billy. Hey, let's get it. So first off, we'll give you an opportunity to get to know each of them, and then we'll dig into things. So Doran, tell us a little about yourself and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great to be here with you and uh, to, to be part of this great conference. Um, you know, like so many of us, I think I was somewhat of an accidental entrant into transit. Um, you hear that story a lot in our business where people don't necessarily, you know, plan to be here, but find themselves here and really realize what a, an incredible space this is. For me, it happened early on. I was a college student, UC Davis, um, needed a job. The best job on campus was driving a bus. And so I started off as a coach operator and really got to experience what it was like to be a coach operator, um, the challenges, the difficulty, but also the great way that we could serve our customers and our riders. Um, and from there, worked in a variety of different aspects of the transit industry during college, did a little bit of time as a consultant, 
And one of my very first consultant projects was to evaluate this little startup transit system called Foothill Transit. So I wasn't there from day one, 35 years ago, uh, but I was kind of there from day one, evaluating the system, and ultimately joined the team, served as deputy executive director, um, deputy CEO, spent two years in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then came back as the chief executive officer, and 20 years, mar uh, August marks my 20th year. Very good. So yeah. it's been a great ride, been able That's to awesome. do a lot of cool things. And t tell us about your agency a little bit. What, what is for yeah. transit? Well, and, and one other quick thing before I do that, just the hat I'm really not going to wear here, but it's another really important hat. I do serve as a citizen representative on the board of directors of access services so yet another role that ties in and that's the ada paratransit service for all of la all of la so one of the biggest ada paratransit operations in the country so lots of lots of moving parts all right tell us about foothills foothill transit is the suburban public transit operator in eastern los angeles county there are 22 cities that are part of the Joint Powers Agreement that makes up Foothill Transit. We connect into about 30 different cities, providing local connecting service and also uh, express service into the downtown Los Angeles Central Business District. Fleet of 360 buses, $125 million operating program, and we've got about $75 million in capital underway at any one point in time. And uh, on the uh, operations side, tell us about the contracting you do. We are a bit unique. We're a bit unique in that from day one, we've always worked with third-party contractors to operate our service, and they truly are our partners. We have two operating divisions. One is operated uh, for us by Transdev. The other is operated for us by Keolis. And for the first 25 years of our operation, the predecessors to Transdev actually handled the management of the organization as well. So our first, we were, we were formed in 1990, 1988, our first employee was not hired until 2013, wow. and guess who has employee record number one? Who? Me. <laughs> That's awesome. So, we, you know, we deeply partner and appreciate the relationship, um, you know, with the, the private sector, if you will, with our business partners, but you'll hear me say partner a lot because we're in this together. We succeed together, and frankly, if we fail, which I don't like that option, but we fail together. One last question, a personal question. Yeah. Tell us about your fascination with Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so we live about 20 miles from the Disneyland Resort in California. And as a kid, I always remember we do a pilgrimage from Northern California to Disney once every two or three years. It was this magical place. Well, when you live 20 miles away, it's real easy to get there. And so for our kids, it became their backyard playground. And for pretty much their entire childhood, I'd say on average, we were in the park probably once a week. Wow. And I think for me, it's not only a, a bit of a little mini vacation, but from a professional standpoint, it's also been a chance to really learn what Disney does from the standpoint of connecting with customers, providing great experience. And I try to bring that back to our organization in terms of, of the things that we do, bringing a little bit of Disney magic along the way. Yeah, we were talking about it on the way here. He's good friends with the guy who runs the Disney Transit System. I'm going to try to get him on the podcast. That would be great. All right, Monica, tell us about yourself. And she just won a really big award. I, was, I got to be present uh, around Christmas time. You will tell us about that and then what you do. Okay, uh, thanks, Paul. So I, I'm a part of the WTS DC chapter, and I did win their Woman of the Year Award. So I was really, really, that was exciting. It was totally unexpected. So 
Thank you, thank you. Um, my entree into transit and transportation, like Doran said, it, it was not where I thought I would be. In my mind, I was gonna be a psychiatrist because I knew a lot of people in my family in particular who could use some psychiatric <laughs> services. So that's what I was going to do. Um, when I was in college, I needed a 300 level course as an elective. Back in those days, they had the course catalog and I'm flipping through it and I saw something called housing and the elderly. Oh, this looks interesting. And then we started talking about transportation. And that really shifted my career, actually. And I was like, I want to go into transportation. Because in my mind, what I knew and what became apparent is transportation connects all of us. Every last single one of us, regardless of your socioeconomic status, you know, race, color, creed, what have you, you're walking, biking, taking the bus, driving, whatever it is, transportation connects all of us. So that's really how I got here. But I do have an undergrad or BS in psychology, and I do use that. And I'm trying to make sure none so of my- be warned, right? Yeah, absolutely. I have to, you know, try to use it on occasion because it does come in handy. So that's really my entree into the world of transit and transportation. So tell us about the agency you lead and what you all do. It's very unique. It is unique. So the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority was created by the Virginia General Assembly 20 years ago. And it was created to really fund transit and transportation projects. But we also do the long-range transportation planning for Northern Virginia. Now, I will tell you what is interesting, because people are like, well, what, you're not a transit operator? No, but we do fund transit capital projects. When I'm explaining what MBTA is, I usually say we function as a sub-area metropolitan planning organization. We do not have that federal designation, but we do the long-range plan, we do our six-year programs, because we do have dedicated revenues to do that. Also, again, capital only, we cannot fund operations. And it, it becomes very interesting because Northern Virginia within itself, and Kate could tell you at MVTC, it's a very interesting region. You have urban, rural, and suburban, and you're trying to address all of those needs. What I wanted to share to uh, show today with these uh, two guests is also the complexity of the operations of how public transportation is organized in the United States. Uh, there's a famous saying that says, if you've seen one, Peter Rogoff said it, if you've seen one transit system, you've seen one transit system. Unlike what you thought that was gonna say, you've seen them all, right? <laughs> it's not that way. Every single transit system in, that I have seen in America, and I think in Canada too, it's kinda like where the apple fell from the tree, how it got started. Two minutes a little bit on context for everyone. A lot of you work day to day on the front lines uh, helping to do scheduling, dispatching, maintenance, supervision, etc. But our industry itself, the public transportation industry, has a very rich and varied history. Remember that after World War II, when all the men came back from the war, that was the highlight. That was the heyday of public transportation in the United States. Um, everyone came back. There wasn't cars as much as there are now. There wasn't two family, two car families like there are now, or three car families. So everyone rode the public transit system to work. And public transit systems were largely owned as private companies. And a lot of them are owned by uh, utility companies, the power company, because many cities had a light rail system or a tram system with the power lines above. And so it was vertical integration of the market for the utility company to sell the power to themselves and to run the transit systems. And there were enough people riding public transit to make it so that it would make money, it would make a profit. 
Then in the 1970s, car ownership became more ubiquitous across America and Canada, and people started using public transportation less. It really was the decade of the 70s where most public transit systems went bankrupt or went belly up and sold all their assets to the local government agencies. It's, that, it's then when different types of agencies sprung up. So you might have one in Memphis where you have a board of directors largely appointed by the mayor. You might have a, a public transit authority like WMATA, Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority, SEPTA, Southeast Pennsylvania Transit Authority. These are quasi-governmental agencies set up that have board members from all the funding jurisdictions. So WMATA, which is in our area, is funded by Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and now the federal government. They all put money in every year to keep it going because it serves the whole region. So that's, that may be an authority. Then you have some that are operated directly by the government. And then you have all these agencies like Monica oversees all over the country, and they're very different and diverse. You have metropolitan planning organizations that receive funding and direct where those monies should go. Uh, sometimes it goes to the state government, like in Maryland, where I was CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration. And the money came down to the State Department of Transportation, and then it was spread out among through the MTA to 24 smaller transit systems in places like Annapolis and Ocean City, et cetera. So it's very interesting to see how all this flows. So I wanted to show a full perspective on how that's done in the United States and also give you ideas and opportunities. Like uh, Dr. Philbrick said when she was up here on our keynote speech, there is a place and an opportunity for almost every skill set to work full-time in the public transit industry. It doesn't just, it's not just drivers, it's not just mechanics, it's not just dispatchers. Everything you can imagine is in a public transit agency, right? So let's take a look above the American border to Canada, to British Columbia, Canada. Erin? Hi, thanks for having me, and thanks for welcoming me to beautiful Nashville, my first time here. Um, let me just describe how I got to where I am. I am a second-generation transit in my family, and I tried to actually run from it. <laughs> my dad started what we call in Canada handy dart, which is paratransit. He started paratransit in Victoria, and I grew up with the buses in my driveway. I grew up surrounded by paratransit. And I don't know why, we can dissect that later, maybe you could help me. I tried to run from that. So I tried to do something different, and I, the, maybe there's a magnet, maybe something happened, but let me explain what happened. Um, I got my first job out of university. I love numbers. like statistics, regression, correlation, love it. And I'm working in this job doing statistical analysis. I'm six months in and the boss comes to me and he's like, you have got to quit. And I'm like, what? He's like, you have way too much personality to be in the number business. And he's so, thankfully for my first boss, he saw something in me that maybe I didn't see. And he goes, you got to go. So I thought, where should I put my energy? And at the time, so where I live in British Columbia, we're a coastal community. We have many, many, many people and residents who live on islands. And I live on an island. And so we, are, we have two kind of public transportation. We have ferries and we have buses. And at the time, there is no choice riders for a ferry. You either leave the island or you don't. And so think about that in terms of a business model. And growing up on an island, dependent on a ferry system, you can imagine the frustration you would have as an islander. And so if you can't fix it, join them. 
So I joined the public ferry company with this almost like level of like rage and excitement because I'm going to fix it all only to find out and be fascinated that it's way more complex behind the curtain, behind the door, under the carpet. It wasn't as easy as I thought it was. And so I spent my early part of my career there. And then our government wanted to look at light rail for Victoria because our population was growing. We have massive traffic problems. So they tapped me to run the light rail project. So trying to get a light rail project off the ground, $5 billion potential project, I failed miserably, and so what they did is they made me CEO. I mean, I... <laughs> Failing upward. Yeah. I, I jumped a couple years there, but that's my joke, is like, you got to try, and my only thing that I can tell you is I said yes to every opportunity, and so when the opportunity came, I jumped. So somehow the magnet of my dad's career has led me back to here, um, who is... BC Transit. So we are in, in Canada, we call it a crown corporation. We're appointed by government. We're, I guess you could call it state run. Is that the best? The province, yeah. So we, we cover the entire province, which is a, except Vancouver, which is TransLink. So if you see the SkyTrain, you know Vancouver, that's a different agency. We are uh, 88 systems across 130 communities. We have about 1,800 buses. 4,000 employees, our operating budget's about 400 million, and our capital plan right now at 10 years is sitting at $5 billion, largely in part to um, the cost of building in our community right now. But it's a massive, amazing, exciting portfolio. We directly run some operations. We contract out to third-party vendors, including TransDev. Uh, we have municipal-run systems. We have mums and pops, paratransits, like the one my dad ran. So anything you want to touch, if you're looking to come to Canada, we are hiring. We have endless amounts of vacancies. It's a fascinating way because we touch every part of the business. A couple comments that uh, I think about when you're talking. My favorite picture of Aaron is a picture when Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, visited you. Tell us about that. It's a gr they're walking, you know, with their hair flowing. And, you know, Justin Trudeau is a, is a very handsome man. It, just, it was a great picture of them walking together. Yeah, so our prime minister came out to Victoria, and we were announcing our zero-emission bus funding. And he wanted to do it in Victoria, and so um, you would have seen us together and announcing the funding. And there was a little bit of a, a battle back and forth around the hair and the height. Uh, behind the scenes, like who's going to go first, but it was very exciting, and uh, we, as our federal government, our federal government is very supportive of zero emission. We have a significant funding program to go to zero emission from the feds. Similar to the states, I assume, the federal government does not fund operating, though, and so, you know, we have a rich capital plan, and we're still trying to figure out where to find those pennies and dollars to actually run the service. One of the great things that happened during the pandemic was CUDA, the Canadian Urban Transit Association, really led the effort. Marco D'Angelo, my friend who's the executive director there, pulled together the transit agencies and really lobbied their federal government heavily. And for the first time ever, they provided some assistance in operating dollars if it was matched by the provincial aid, right? Yeah, it was around $5 billion of COVID relief funding that we called, and it gets prorated to each province based on your ridership pre-COVID. So... We have a very interesting way of allocating the money. Um, and so within uh, British Columbia, where we are, TransLink covers uh, two and a half million residents, and we cover the other two and a half million residents. So we're always fighting for that next dollar. I said penny earlier, but we actually don't have pennies anymore in Canada. So <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, we got rid of them. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, the other fun memory I have is that when I visited her a few years ago, uh, I took a seaplane. In. And so it's like, you know, a little Piper Cup plane, but you land right in the harbor of, at Victoria. It's just phenomenal coming in like that way. 
Yeah, the only way onto our island is a plane, float plane, helijet helicopter, or the ferry. So come visit Vancouver Island. We're about a million people now on the entire island, and it's a beautiful place to be. Um, and we're going to dig into a little bit on the fuel situation in just a minute with Aaron, what's happening up there, because it's a little different than other people are doing. I wanted to bring that out and highlight it. So let me ask you all a question. This is a participation question. What do you think the number one challenge is right now for public transit agencies? So for the last six months after kind of the pandemic is pretty much over, right? At the end of last year, everybody declared, okay, it's over. What has been a challenge for every transit agency? Couple hands, maybe. Anybody got any ideas? What you think the number one, yes, staffing. You got it. Were you gonna say that too? Right, staffing. So that's why I asked Billy to come here. Our number one need is well-trained, competent individuals, people to do the jobs that transit requires. And unfortunately, our industry's been hit, just like every other industry with, it, where did everybody go? Where did everybody go? Where'd they go, Billy? They're at home shopping online. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, um, uh, Paul. Um, full disclosure, at the National Transit Institute, we are couched within the School of Public Policy at Rutgers University. Um, you know, we joke, we say, you know, we're 31 years old, still living in our parents' basement, right? Um, so NTI has been around um, 31, 32 years, and we are so blessed um, to be funded by the Federal Transit Administration to be the training arm for uh, the industry. Um, Pre-COVID um, NTI, we did probably anywhere on the onset of 275 to 280 on-site courses per year. Um, if you totaled it up, it was probably 82, 8,300 transit and transportation professionals that we train pre-COVID. Of course, when COVID um, hit, we instantaneously had to default to virtual training. We had a great conversation about virtual training um, a little bit earlier on the executive summit, um, but it has been a, an absolute uh, challenge, uh, again, um, to be honest with you, um, because there are distinct differences between training in person and training uh, virtually. But as my grandma used to say, something better than nothing, baby. Right, so um, virtual training is, is is what we had. We are emerging um, from COVID, um, and we will continue to offer virtual training and in-person training um, going forward. I do not know what those proportions will be, right? Um, but we'll continue to offer training via both uh, platforms, um, mainly because we're finding we were able to touch a wider group of people um, via virtual small urbans, rural, who did not have training dollars to come to on-site courses, were able to touch them now. But the other thing I will say um, quickly, Paul, is um, we do mainly the administrative side of training, right? We don't necessarily train uh, mechanics, maintainers, um, operators. Um, if you look at our course portfolio, um, our courses are National Transit Database, Title VI, Procurement, DBE, um, and we're really fortunate because FTA has allowed us to get more into the leadership space, right? So um, we had a conversation earlier about training mid-level managers who are our greatest portion proportion of leaders in our agencies, and what is the emotional intelligence of those um, mid-level managers? Um, so we're really excited about diving into that leadership development uh, space um, because if you have technically competent people but not emotionally intelligent 
intelligent people, it has a horrific impact on your agency. And if it has a horrific impact on your agency, it has a horrific impact on your service. If it has a horrific impact on your service, it has a horrific impact on the people that you serve. And if it has a horrific impact on the people that you serve, it ultimately has a horrific impact on lives and, and communities. Yeah. So Billy, this is, um, for those of you who want to move up in your career, one of the reasons why I asked Billy to be here is because he's a resource. How can people take a course? It is ntionline.com, ntionline.com. Uh, um, and, and I will say, you know, clearly full disclosure, I am not the CEO or general manager of a transit agency. Um, I, have, I am so blessed to have built so many relationships with uh, transit CEOs um, over the years. My good friend, um, Doran, has been a tremendous uh, mentor um, the time that I've been in the transit industry, and I'm grateful for him. But I will say, you know, I, I, would, I would imagine being a transit CEO is sort of like being a politician. Like, you don't, with the exception of here and here, you don't necessarily sit out and aspire to it. Like, oh, I want to be an elected official. You do good work, and via those good works, it, you, you transition and you translate. And people say, hey, you ever think about running for X office or becoming a, a CEO? But, but I will say, um, in, in my humble opinion, Paul, what I'm finding is that those people who matriculate to the CEO level, they are highly emotionally intelligent, right? They are people who can manage the big trifecta, the big trifecta being loyalty, competency, and diversity, right, amongst your staff, because one out of three is bad, right? You, I'll let you do that math. If you don't have a loyal individual, that's tragic. If you don't have a competent individual, tragic. And if you don't have a diverse team, there's tragedy associated with that. Um, I would say um, those people who matriculate to the CEO level are purposeful about regional relationships, right? You have to be internally focused, but purposeful about regional relationships. Do you know who the school superintendent is? Who's the president of your chamber? Um, the president of the community college, right? Intentional about those, um, those external uh, relationships. And then very um, quickly, Paul, I would say that um, understanding that the notion of culture osmosis, right? And so what I mean by that is that we have conversations about the culture of an organization that have been established for many, many years, right? That's how that organization um, derived that culture. And when you come in as a CEO, it does not work by osmosis, right? And you have to be content of what things am I going to implement that may not manifest for a while. We use words like fix and solution, maybe it should be alleviate and move forward sometimes. So um, I would say humility, high emotional intelligence, developing regional um, uh, partnerships are some of the key elements of people who matriculate to CEO level. All right, Monica, I'm gonna go to you next. So Monica mentioned during her opening comments, you have a 17 member board. 17. Tell us how you navigate that. Billy's talked about you're basically a politician. A lot of your board members are politicians, right? Yes, they are either the mayors or chairs of, we have what we call nine member jurisdictions here. Northern Virginia is comprised of five cities, four counties. And then the speaker of the House of Delegates gets to appoint two members. And then I have a senator and I have a mayor from one of the towns with a population of 3,500 or more. So out of my 17 members at any given time, 13 are elected officials, and then nine are the highest ranking elected officials. And you have to have a certain psychology to this, as Billy said, and your emotional intelligence. 
I know what I need to get them to get me and the organization to a place where we need to be. And it is consensus, consensus, consensus. All of the work we have to do behind the scenes, and it is a lot, it is a lot, for them to be able to walk into the room and vote accordingly. I like unanimous decisions that go in our favor. Um, what I do not like is when they get to the meeting and there is discourse and things of that nature because now I'm like, did we, me, because the buck stops with me, did I fail at some point in talking to who I needed to talk to? And it's oftentimes not always the elected official. It's their chief of staff, their DOT head. You know, again, getting to those relationships, having the relationships so that you can get what you need to advance the organization. Like we were saying, and I'm not a transit provider and not a transit operator, but we fund various transit programs. We have $1.2 billion, or excuse me, $3.2 billion worth of projects we're advancing. So everyone is vested. But it is understanding the psychology, because for elected officials, they have constituents that they have to go back and face. And what tools can I give them to be able to go back and face their constituents sometimes when it doesn't go their way? So it, it, it takes a lot of relationship building and a lot of consensus building to get us where we need to be. In your job there, what percentage of your time would you say is spent on, and this isn't pejorative, uh, board management? Oh, 80%. 80%. Um, being at the CEO, I'm not doing the technical, I'm not running numbers and things like that. I have staff to do that. It's my job to take that information, and now I'm having these conversations to make sure the board is comfortable. And in addition to the board, I cannot tell you how many calls I get from the Virginia General Assembly anytime we get to a funding program, because they're like, we created you. You should be investing in certain type of projects. So now I'm having conversations not only with the 17-member board, but mem and I won't say how many, but members of the Virginia General Assembly as well. So it's at least 80% because I'm taking the information my staff has given to me. We're having these conversations. I'm like, this is how it works for the good of the region. So I, I asked those questions because I wanted you to see what it's like in these, and that's what today is about. It's showing you what it's like to sit in these seats uh, that my friends have. Uh, and I also now want to dig into how their decision-making process goes. So I'm going to ask Doran two questions, and they're both why questions. The first question is, why do you have double-decker buses, Doran? Why do we have double-decker buses? Now, we're not the only ones that have double-decker <laughs> buses, but we're, we're way back in the pack on that. But you know, in thinking about the roles that we play as, as chief executives, it really is hugely in the political politician realm. Um, I also spend a lot of my time in that space. And I spend a lot of time thinking about who are my customers. And of course, our customers are the people who ride the bus. They're, they're always very, very important. But my number one customer is my board of directors. My number two customer is our riders. My number three customer is every member of the community because ultimately, again, follow the money. Who pays for the service? Is it the person riding the bus? Eh, a little tiny bit. Is it everyone in the community who's agreed to tax themselves to pay for that service? Absolutely. And so our double deck bus project had a, a couple of threads to it. Um, we are, are kind of our marquee service is a service that runs on the Interstate 10 corridor uh, from Montclair to the very east to downtown LA. 
about 75% of it is freeway miles. Um, and we, we, we brand it as the Silver Streak along that corridor. We bought um, articulated buses, again, not the first ones to do that, but when we introduced those articulated buses to the community, and they've got a fancy paint scheme and the whole bit, the members of the community, many who would never ride the bus, perhaps their life doesn't support that, but members of the community would come up to me and say, wow, that's a cool bus. Wow, you guys, are doing a, you guys and gals are doing a great job. This is a good thing. And so having that kind of response in the community garners the support we need to carry out our core mission of carrying people. The bad thing, anybody who's ridden on an articulated bus on a freeway at hopefully 60 miles an hour knows that you're gonna lose your teeth if you aren't careful. So the Double Deck Bus Project was a way to have, again, a very distinctive footprint that gives a great ride experience that elevates the brand and elevates what we do for people who ride the bus, but also for people who see that bus in the community. We've got two battery electric, first two battery electric double deck buses in North America, and we're looking to purchase another 24 to expand that fleet. Well, that's a great segue. Thank you for that. So uh, as, as everybody knows, and we've heard a lot of talk about it, I'm sure this week already, the industry is leaning into environmental stewardship. One of the, I think one of the things that came out of the pandemic was public transportation agencies decided that getting more riders one year after the next is not necessarily our only indicator of success as an agency. Instead, we could do other things, such as environmental stewardship and such as adding equity and inclusion to our communities. You've been one of the leaders in California as a state, but also your agency in particular, when it comes to battery electric buses. But now, in the last three months, everyone is talking about hydrogen and you happen to have the largest hydrogen fleet in America. Tell us why are you thinking about moving and leaning into hydrogen fuel? We leaned in early to electric buses. Back in 2010, we launched uh, uh, the first heavy-duty fast-charge buses in North America. And for any of you that are schedulers out there, many of you are, or, or work with scheduling software, in order to make that fast-charge program work, the, the good side is the bus charges in less than 10 minutes. The bad side is you have to charge it every two hours. So think, think about building that into your, your run schedules where you have to add five to seven minutes every two hours to your trip time. That costs money and adds complexity to the system. Um, so we started there, we then moved to overnight charging and what we found there is we were running into issues with range. Battery electric buses continue to evolve and we're, not, we're, we're still supportive of both technologies, but in our early, our early generation buses, we weren't getting the range we needed. The other challenge is that it takes five to six hours to charge that bus. Now, has anybody ever had the experience of plugging in your cell phone and you thought you plugged it in, but you get up in the morning and you've got 10% battery? Okay, everybody. Well, think about an electric bus. You thought you plugged it in, but you didn't. You're ready for pullout and that bus is not ready to go. And you can't swing it around to the fuel aisle and fill it up and get it out on the route. So what we've pivoted now to is the use of hydrogen, which is the other zero emission electric vehicle. Um, with hydrogen, we're able to get a 350-mile range load of fuel on that bus, and we can do it within about 10 minutes. Um, it operates pretty much just like a CNG-powered bus once you get it out on the street. And so that's really why we've made that pivot, is that we think that the management of that zero-emission fuel is going to be more in line with what we have done and what fits from an economic perspective. The downside at the moment is that hydrogen's expensive. And so we're also leaning in with the various hydrogen producers and production projects to try to get the price of hydrogen driven down. Um, so with all of these technologies, we're early on and there's still things to be learned. 
If you're interested more in talking about hydrogen fuel or learning about it, you bring it up to people and they're like, oh, the Hindenburg? No, that was 100 years ago. Things are a lot safer now. But we just, I just did an in-depth interview with Kirk Conrad, who's the CEO of Stark Transit, on the Transit Unplugged podcast. And I asked him to break it down, unpack exactly how hydrogen works on a bus. And he does. And it's fascinating. Uh, it ends up your only byproduct is water coming out, of the, coming out of the fuel pipe. So if you haven't listened to that podcast and you're interested in in uh, hydrogen fuel. Take a listen to that. All right. Speaking of other fuels, uh, interesting what's happening with you in Canada. Tell us about kind of your bridge fuel that you're moving going to there, uh, Aaron, in Canada. Okay. Let me see if I can get this right because I know buses and this is going to be fun. So obviously in Canada as well, we have greenhouse gas emission targets. BC Transit, we are happy to achieve those targets. At the same time, we have a you know 1,800 bus fleet. With the, it would take us 10 years to replace all of those buses if we based it on replacement schedule. That meaning that the market actually has the buses available that we need and they work. And so we're going, we're going electric and BC is a renewable, we're a province with renewable hydroelectricity. We have enough electricity, we don't even know what to do with it. Probably selling, we do sell, sell some to California. So the source of our electricity is not a problem. I'm waiting for some of the market to catch up to us. So at the same time, I feel responsible that we still are using diesel as our main source of fuel. And so let me see if I can get this right. So in BC, any petroleum petroleum producing um, provider has to buy offsets to offset their emissions. They do that what we call carbon credits. If you are a producer of a zero emission type fuel, you get to earn carbon credits. So you then go earn those and then you sell them on the open market. We have CNG, 250 CNG buses, and we produce the uh, natural gas right on our site. Because we compress the natural gas on our site, we earn the credits. So we've got this little credit bank that creates a little revenue source that is allowing us to offset some alternative fuel products to reduce GHGs. So you're with me still? We're with me? So RNG, which is renewable natural gas, which you can buy to fill the pipeline for CNG, it's a, basically it's a, a off gas of decomp composition of organic materials. You can insert in your brain what you think that might be. Um, RNG is great. We talked about that. It reduces your emissions from CNG, which is about 8% down to 85%, but it's expensive. And I don't have, I already mentioned, I don't have a single dollar to spend anywhere. So sell my carbon credits, use the RNG, but I only have 250 CNG buses because CNG buses, you need to get the CNG to the site. The shops have to be upgraded to gaseous code and, 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 right? So then I'm still sitting there going, well, 80% of my fleet is still diesel. Ugh, what am I going to do? Here it comes. Get ready. <laughs> BC Transit branded sunglasses for whoever can shout out what HDRD stands for. Anybody? Please don't make me remember it. Come on. Okay, I guess they're all mine now. <laughs> Hydrogenative derived renewable diesel. It is a green diesel product that is expensive. So again, it reduces your emissions by up to 95% if you can get it into your buses, but you have to buy it somehow. So I, I, that's... We're, we've secured about 2 million liters of this HDRD that's going to allow us to meet our 2025 targets for GHG reduction without ever having put an electric bus on the road. It's amazing in terms of that cycle that I just walked you through. Um, HDRD, though, goes directly into your bus. This is not just RNG, which is in the pipeline. So we are actually testing it to make sure we don't screw up any unintended consequences within the engines and all those other parts that I don't understand. But we are taking, there's things you can do that might not be the direct pathway to the electric, because I still think we need to bridge. 
And I, I still think that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I know at BC Transit, our first 500 buses for electric are, I'm going to say, <laughs> easy. But after 500, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. And so I do think the industry is going to need to think about alternatives to how do we achieve, I call it low carbon, not zero emission. How do we achieve low carbon using all of the tools in the toolbox, not necessarily pointing to one type of technology? So hopefully I did that all right for the people in the room that understood what I was saying. I'm still willing to give these away. <laughs> There'll be a test at the end, if you can remember that, right? <laughs> Let's pivot now, Billy, to the human side. So we've gotten into the technical side. Uh, we've come out of really one of the most weirdest, uh, oddest situations that the world has ever had, right? This two-year lockdown of COVID where we couldn't interact with other people. Uh, we were doing everything by Zoom except for our drivers and mechanics who had to be out there every day uh, and supervisors, et cetera. But for those in the room here today, as we look down to what the future holds for us, where can we start on ourselves? Uh, improving, our, my dad used to always say, you know, you need to try to improve yourself every day. Where can we start every day today improving ourselves? Well, I'm, I'm gonna sound like a broken record and go back to this concept of um, um, emotional intelligence and communication skills, um, uh, because I think everything emanates around that. And in, in its basic form, emotional intelligence is literally a management of one's own emotion and a comprehension of others' emotion. Oh, say that again. It is a management of one's own emotion and a comprehension of others' emotions. And not just emotions, but reactions, et cetera, et cetera. And what we lost over COVID, right? Um, we, we are in a virtual world in need of human interaction, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, all of those meetings, et cetera, et cetera. For, again, for those of us who exist in those white collar positions, right? Some of them who have never been back in their office are now going to their office two or, you know, three days a week, right? Um, what we're finding is a tremendous demand in those communication skills. So we um, launched a course called Business Writing, writing it right, W-R-I-T-I-N-G-R-I-G-H-T, right? Because what we're finding is so much is lost in written translation, right? And so we have, we are people who at times are intellectually lazy, right? And we, we get responses from emails and memos and things like, who wrote this, <laughs> right? Um, and so, um, the, again, this notion of being an efficient writer, and then second, writer, and then secondly, these communication skills. Another um, skill, um, Paul, for those who matriculate to um, uh, executive level positions of being media savvy, right? This notion of verbal communication. We are really excited. We are starting a brand new course called um, um, Preparing and Deliver, preparing and delivering a powerful presentation. It's probably gonna be about a 90 minute course and the overwhelming majority of that course is gonna be about what you do before you step in front of your audience, your preconceived notions about the audience, how you structure it. Um, whether you talk for five hours or five minutes, most people walk away with about three things. Thank you. That's it. And so um, what we're focusing on, 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 Paul, again, FTA has given us a tremendous opportunity to step into that leadership and emotional intelligence space. And part of how we emerge from COVID is about enhancing um, our communication skills. That's awesome. So with that in mind, think about uh, your career goals and where you want to go and understand that what leadership is normally looking for is the competence and the loyalty and the diversity, but they're also looking for the ability to communicate. 
both in written and verbal skills. That means your ability to rise up in an organization can be limited by your inability to communicate effectively. The 21st century leader has to be able to communicate. 90 some percent of people are afraid to be on a stage and talk in front of other people. It's just, it's built in. They've done surveys and people said, what are you most afraid of? And public speaking came in above death. <laughs> people are scared to death of being up on stage. So my point to that is a couple quick tips. Uh, if you have an opportunity at your organization to speak, I'd encourage you to take it. Make three notes to yourself. What do I want to say? What Billy just said. One, two, three. Put it on a card. Look at it. Extrapolate in your mind what you're going to say about each of those points. Put it in your pocket. And when you get up and do your five or ten minutes, you just go to those three points. If you have an opportunity to speak to the media, and you just say those three points no matter what they ask you. You just go back and you say, you know, well, what happened with this thing? Well, let me tell you. And have you ever noticed that about politicians? Why it seems like they're not really saying anything? They're not answering the question that was asked of them? They're getting to the three talking points that their media person put in front of them before they went out. So those are just a couple tips for your practical steps right now to improve yourself. Now, I thought we'd do something fun. We've got about eh, 12, 13 minutes left. Uh, we're going to do two questions. One is, tell us about a couple things in your daily routine or your weekly routine at work that I think people will be interested in. What is your life like as a CEO? And then we're going to do a future-focused question. What do you see coming in the future? Doran, what's your life like? What did you do last week that was interesting? Boy, what, well, first off, no, no two weeks are the same. Um, but there, there is a kind of a cadence to my life in that um, my number one customer is my board. I have to be focused on my number one customer is my board. Isn't that, let me break it, isn't that interesting? He knows who his number one customer is. Absolutely. Self-knowledge is key to success. You, I used to tell county administrators, you got to be able to count the three yep. on every Tuesday. Because there's five commissioners, oh, you yeah. can be voted out any Tuesday with three votes. So you've got to be able to count. Same with board, oh, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So five-member five member executive board where most of the action is, 25-member full governing board. So it makes life really interesting. So last week, I'll give you a, a, a yeah. snapshot here. Um, Tuesday, we had our executive board meeting. The five members were there. Leading up to that was a one-on-one -on -one briefing with each one of those members one-on-one. One-on-one, over lunch, and usually lunch or breakfast. Um, they can range anywhere from an hour to three hours. I find that the ratio of business to other stuff, it's about, you know, 33-66. And usually the 66 is, how's your family? What's going on? How's the weather? But it's relationship building. Super, super important. So run up to the Tuesday board meeting, had that meeting, went really well. We had some really thoughtful discussion, really engaged conversation, consensus votes, but not, not just rubber stamp votes. I mean, there was really thoughtful votes and, and good discussion. Later in the week, I onboarded two new members of our 25-member board, the first step in that relationship building. But you know what the ultimate highlight of the week was? It was the Claremont Chamber of Commerce first annual miniature golf tournament. Four hours on the golf course, and my chairman is a, is a council member from the city of Claremont. Four hours on the miniature golf course with Corey. We talked a little bit of business, we had some fun, we laughed, relationship building. And Corey's a great guy, I really like him a lot, he's a great friend, but it's constantly building that relationship. So it sounds crazy that mini golf is the highlight of the week, 
but that kind of stuff is really important. It is. I mean, they say a lot of business gets done on the golf course, even the mini golf course, I guess. <laughs> All right, Monica, give us a couple highlights for your week last week. Um, last week was interesting. So my board approved a study for a preliminary deployment plan for a regional bus rapid transit system. I know that's a long, long title. So we had an open house about that because in Northern Virginia, where and Paul noted we have WMATA Metro, they cannot extend at this point in time. So we were looking at options and how could we provide high capacity transit in lieu of metro extending at this time. It doesn't mean in lieu of metro extension, but at this time, because we do have some localities in our region that does not have metro and they're like, okay, what, what can we do in the interim? So we had an open house for that. And then my week, and this is typical, if I'm not in a meeting, I'm leaving my, a meeting and I'm on a way, my way to a meeting. Meeting. I have a lot of meetings, but the highlight of my week was uh, meeting with my mentee. I have a mentee through the WTS uh, in uh, WTSDC. I love it. I love it because it gives me a chance to feed into someone who's trying to get to the C-suite. Because when I started here, I'm t I was a regional transportation planner, and then I got this job. Scared to death scared to death because the authority was new-ish, you know, no money and versus money, new-ish, they had never had a permanent executive director, now CEO, and I'm like, what do I do? So I sought people out that, you know, I thought could help me. So now I try to feed back into, so the highlight of my week was really meeting with my mentee, trying to just offer guidance, and you know, it's really a reciprocal relationship because she teaches me some things that I didn't know, but usually I'm in a meeting, I'm leaving a meeting, I'm on my way to a meeting, my assistant is telling me I'm late for a meeting, but that is, it, it, it does, yeah. it's a lot of meetings. Yeah, we used to say at WMATA, that stood for we meet and talk a lot, <laughs> instead of Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority. So. All right, Aaron, give us a couple highlights for your week last week. Similar to what these two said, but I think I'll touch on one highlight specifically. Um, I meet with all new employees, every new employee, regardless of position, even a co-op student from university. Every single employee, again, as a CEO, you design where you're gonna put your time, you design where you put your effort. That's the best part about this job. So we meet this new employee and I looked at him and he's, he's uh, gotten a new job as like a senior government relations person for our, for our government, that's a big, big title job, like it's a big job, and I kind of recognized him. And he's like, yeah, you don't recognize me. I was like, no. He's like, I've been a driver here for five years. So like, this is like music to my heart, is that he had left a very high profile job from stress, and he just wanted to try something new, and he's been driving our buses, but he, this job came up and he said, I, I decided I'm gonna put my feet back into the water of what I used to do because I love this organization. It's, we are very people supportive. And so that was my highlight because as we've talked about this in this whole session and this conference is like, it's all about the people. And so anytime you can get, think about what he's gonna be able to do for us as an actual former bus driver going right into government to, to promote our services and get us funding. So that was definitely my highlight. That's awesome, thank you. Billy, what was your couple highlights from last week? I Honestly, don't know. So, Do you I, remember what last week was? I, I, yes. I saw Monica last week. I saw her. Um, so I'll say uh, very quickly, 
what consumes all of my time is the conversion of in-person content to virtual content. That, that consumes all of my time, my staff time. The notion you can take a four-day course you offer in-person and convert it to virtual, it don't happen that way. The activities, the content, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a part of it. Um, the second thing is, uh, when I saw Monica, uh, we are now um, a sponsor of the Eno uh, Transportation Senior Executive Program, amongst some of the other things we're sponsoring. Um, we do not have to be the curators of enhancing the industry. It does not have to emanate from NTI. So we are sponsoring a number of national, we're sponsoring WTS in Atlanta. So, so went down to Tyson's Corner, observed uh, Nadine Lee, wonderful Nadine, who runs DART, her panel, and then drove back to New Jersey after I saw you at the reception. And then lastly, um, again, a significant portion of our time in, oh, we're, just, we're taping this, right? Okay. Um, so a significant, por okay. A significant portion of my staff's time is customer service. Again, 8,000 people that we, a small, oh, I thought that was Pacific time, not Eastern time. That's why I was late to the class. Oh, I didn't register. I just put it in the box, but I didn't consummate the deal. So I'm really not registered. 40 to 45% of our staff's time is dealing with people trying to register for our courses. So that was probably a huge problem. Wow, that's something. That's great. Thank you all. D did you enjoy this? We got one more question, but was this good? A good... I tell you, I really want to thank uh, Teresa and Peter and Rod for the opportunity to continue to kind of shine the light on our leaders of our industry. This is great. Not everybody gets the opportunity to, to see and hear this every day. So that's my last question for you. One minute each. Give us a final thought. Maybe it's a future thinking thought or a summary of what you've already said. Give us a minute, Doran. All right. Well, the minute I'm going to leave this panel with or this discussion with is that if you look around this room, if you look around this event, we are all part of this transit family. It doesn't matter what your job is. doesn't matter what your role is. We are all part of this collective family. And it comes back to the conversation I had, or the point I had earlier about working with our, our operating partners. It's bigger than that. It's really all of us coming together, and we're ultimately here to help make people's lives better. The way we do that, the way we get stronger, is to come together at events like this, and to be able to exchange information, share ideas, talk about challenges, and have these candid conversations. And I've learned a lot. First time I've been here, and Paul, thank you for inviting me. I have a whole new perspective about Modaxo and the, and the things that you do. I didn't even realize that at Foothill Transit, I felt bad, but I didn't think we were a customer, but we really are, because we actually use the TransTrack product and have for a long time, and of course at Access Services, we use the Trapeze product. But it's not about the product. The product is one of the tools to get to that broader goal. And so I applaud Modaxo, Paul, I applaud you for bringing this group together, for bringing this conference together, for having these conversations. Again, lean into the family. That's how we become strong. It's awesome. I can tell you, and I didn't tell him to say this, but uh, when I was at a, a low point in my career, I reached out to Doran uh, within hours after a low point in my career, and he was there for me as a partner and kind of guided me through, okay, make sure you do this, make sure you don't say that when the Washington Post calls. I remember that conversation, Doran, and uh, he has been a good friend of mine, and that's what it's all about, it's being there for each other in the tough times as well as the high times. Monica? And to piggyback off of that, Paul, I would say get yourself a good mentor. Um, regardless of where you are, even at the CEO level, I have a core group that I'm always talking to because sometimes I need to talk and I need advice and input. Get yourself a good mentor. And then someone is always watching you. If you're working hard, they're watching. And if you're not working hard. And don't think that your work is going unnoticed. 
someone is watching you and your time will come as you continue to put in that great effort. That's wonderful. Thank you, Monica. Great advice. Erin? I think it, a classic cliche of like pay it forward. We're, we're in this industry because we're here to do it for the community and the customers and the communities we serve. So we're all here for the people. We're not here for profit. So what are you doing in your own role to pay it forward? It, it doesn't matter what your role is. Are you helping someone else? Are you mentoring someone? Are you learning something new? The, we as the industry are the collective. And so I think it, this is why I love the industry. We're not in competition with each other. We can all share and learn. And so that's my thing is what have you done today or tomorrow to pay it forward within the industry? And if we can all do that, I think we can all become better. Wonderful. All right, Billy, bring it home. Leadership is lonely and it doesn't always feel good. And if it doesn't feel good, that doesn't mean you're not doing the right thing. Create space for people to learn and grow and don't be disappointed when everybody doesn't want a ticket on that bus. Everybody doesn't want to be a leader. Everybody doesn't want to grow. Identify those people that do and support them. It's beautiful. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your day. And they'll be standing around if you want to come up and chit-chat with them some at the end. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's special episode of Transit Unplugged, the live CEO roundtable from Think Transit with our special guests, Doran Barnes, Monica Backman, Aaron Pinkerton, and Billy Terry. And next week on Transit Unplugged In-Depth, we have Rick Ilgenfritz from Community Transit in Everett, Washington, talking to Paul about delivering transit in his community. Now, don't forget to go to transitunplugged.com to sign up for the newsletter so you're always in the loop with whatever's going on with the show. But if you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.